Welcome to Next Page. Good morning, Todd. Good morning, Laura. How are you today? I'm good. I'm just, you know, like feeling it after our weekend of interviews. It's been, we've been piling them up this weekend, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, it's just, we are trying to get the best content we can out there to all the people. Absolutely. And our Instagram is growing. We're we're getting closer and closer to 10,000 followers. I'm very excited about it. Yes. But for real guys, if you, you know, everybody out there listening, please go like our page. And so you can stay up to date on what's going on and go like us and review us on Instagram and not Instagram. Don't review us on Instagram. I don't even know if that's an option, but iTunes, all the other things. Obviously, if you have bad things to say, maybe just send us an email, but (laughs) either way, so happy to be here this morning. What you been up to? What have I been up to? I have been uh, traveling again. I was in Alaska again. It's been very cold and very rainy. We had a issue on on stage recently. The one the scrim came down and what's a scrim? I've been meaning scrim, to ask you that. Sorry, a scrim is it's a it's a very very heavy piece of see through fabric that almost feels like a burlap, but it's not. It's like a little smoother than burlap. It's like a screen door, almost okay. like a screen door, like that kind of thing. But there, it, it's it's hooked to this, like, basically this heavy metal pipe oh. that is, is, extends the entire length of the stage. So it came it came down and there's a box that all of the big cabinet box that all of these singers are are hiding in for the magic show. Right. Oh my gosh. And uh, and we just make them appear. <laughs> well, it came down. It, uh, we had a new tech person and he had pushed it too far close to the stage. <gasps> so the scrim came down and it went it fell forward with all of the singers inside oh God. and one person was able to catch it, but they still, a couple of singers did get injured, but nothing too serious. Oh but, uh, but yeah, it, it's definitely, it was definitely like a, we had to cancel the show because the scrim got bent completely <laughs> off of the rig. So there was no show for that night. So well, they, I would have been uh, <laughs> thought like that those people are not getting back in that box. Like I'd yeah, be like, well, no more it, box. It's, it's created over. a little PTSD for sure, which, <laughs> which I tell them, Come come listen to Next Page Podcast. Yes, we can help you with that. We'll help you. We don't have exactly a particular episode about being, um, I don't know, falling over in a box. But a lot of these things can be adapted to said situations. Absolutely. And what have you been up to? Uh, just, you know, traveling, trying to get out of Charleston as much as possible because it's, it's hot as hell. Unbearably hot. As hot. Hell. The humidity is, I mean, it's... It's personally offensive to me at this point. <laughs> so went up to the mountains, saw my parents up there, oh, cool. went out to Napa, did a bunch Ooh. of, uh, you know, love, did a hot air balloon ride. That oh, was pretty amazing. Epic. Yeah. You so, do that really early in the morning, right? Oh, no. Yeah. It was too, it was too early. But yeah, we had to. <laughs> what we took off or we had to be there at 515 in the morning. So I just refused to acclimate to the time change until said hot air balloon happened because it was like, at least it felt like 8.15 to me. So I was pretty proud of myself for that. But anyways, I'm very excited for everybody to hear our episode today. So excited. Just a good one. It's, you know, applicable if uh, to a lot of things, but obviously this one is very specific uh, as far as what our guest is dealing with. But I really encourage everybody, even if you don't have particular issue to listen to it because you you really can gain a lot of wisdom and and may help somebody you know or somebody you're close with or maybe somebody you know is, is struggling with this so and it's the ba- it's it, we we tackle the the uh, the taboo topic of porn in today's oh, episode oh yeah finally Todd's just been waiting and waiting Will you go ahead and tell our listeners about our wonderful guest today? Yes. So today we interviewed J.K. Amazie, who is a former porn addict, a sex and pornography addiction recovery coach, behavioral specialist, and CEO of Elevated Recovery, an online addiction recovery agency. After conquering his own 10-year-long porn addiction, he went on to become a very successful entrepreneur using Elevated Recovery to help others with the same hard-fought battle he faced. He also runs the Porn Reboot Program, the most successful addiction recovery system for men struggling with porn addiction, and the Optimum You Program that helps those recovering from addiction get healthy, start dating again, and become financially successful. He is also the author of Confessions of a Porn Addict, Seven Secrets to Eliminate Porn Addiction Forever. Amazie has successfully guided hundreds of high-achieving men and their partners through their worst compulsive behaviors, 
behaviors such as having serial affairs, porn addiction, habits of patronizing prostitutes, and other situations which have left well-meaning good men open to the risks of divorce, job loss, sexual harassment, litigation, and severe underachievement in their lives. So without further ado, we give you JK Amazie. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to the show, JK Amazie. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Yeah. So let's get started. We're so pumped. So let's just dive right in. So we'd like you to kind of share the a little bit about like a background about where you're from and kind of what your childhood was like before we get into all of the addiction stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. We're jumping straight oh, yeah. into my childhood. Oh, yeah. We dig deep here. We dig deep. <laughs> it all stems from childhood. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fantastic. I am, I'm right now, I'm in Wichita, Kansas. Um, I live here uh, with my partner of 14 years. And let's jump to childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I live and work out of here. But uh, I grew up in a Christian conservative family. My family was actually Catholic, and it, I, I was brought up with all that conditioning and all the conservatism. And I still keep quite a bit of it. Right now, I don't identify as a Christian, but I still pray. I still believe in God. And a lot of my clients still walk that path, which is a wonderful thing. I was exposed to pornography at the age of eight years old. My parents were both in the medical field, and they were always gone, always in the clinic or in the hospital. And they had a extended family member who was sort of a nanny. And I loved comic books as a kid, absolutely did. And one day I saw her reading a comic. I was a very voracious reader. And I was like, I've not read that one. You know, when you're a kid and you really want to read a comic book and you have limited access, you're going to do whatever it takes. You'll trade stuff in school to get one. And uh, she just wouldn't let me read it. And I just thought it was unfair. I was like, you're supposed to be nice to us. <laughs> so I went to her room later on and I found it. And it turned out that this was actually a, a pornographic comic and it had a whole theme which many years later i came to find that it affected me in my life later on and it's so interesting when it comes to sexual behavior how your first exposure to sex and what you watch can become such an integral part of what we call your arousal templates the way that you are aroused and turned on and i came to find that out so much later just by working with clients i reflected on myself what happened because I wasn't able to, as a child, get physically aroused, there was a chemical reaction. There was adrenaline because I knew this was bad. I knew my parents were going to whoop me if they found out. I just knew. I just knew instinctively. But that chemical reaction was unlike anything I had ever experienced because in my childlike mind, well, I was a child. It was a childish mind. A lot of questions were answered. I was like, oh, this is what sex is but they were answered in the wrong way. But you know, when there is that knowledge and when it is paired with something that is so neurochemically powerful, it imprints on you. You never forget that. You, some people might call it even a traumatic event when you are incapable of actually handling the, the emotions which come up. What happened after that was every time I felt lonely or afraid, or I felt that I had acted out and my parents were going to spank me, what did I do? I went looking for that emotion. And I could only get that emotion from looking at pictures of nudity. And so I continued to do that till I hit about 14 years old. And that was when I figured out that, oh, there is actually something good that comes from this, which was orgasm. And that became my coping mechanism for the next decade or so of my life, everything challenging that happened to me, I avoided cope. I avoided any healthy coping mechanisms and I went straight to pornography and orgasm. And by the time I was 17, 18 years old, I would be what you would describe as a, I was what you would describe as a full blown porn. Wow. So that, I mean, I've never heard of this arousal template and I think that's kind of a a very interesting topic, and I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit off script here, but do you find that like in almost every case? Everybody has their own arousal template. However, when it comes to things like pornography addiction, I just want to set the record straight because um, there are people who will come back to this podcast one day and argue <laughs> it that, oh, it's not a thing. There are different 
uh, uh, certifying bodies and whoever it is that decides what is what medically that agree and disagree with it, there's still a lot of the medical community does not believe that there is a thing called pornography mm. addiction. It's only in the last couple of years. So I've been doing this for 11 years. And when I started, people thought it was hilarious that they were just like, what? You know, pornography addiction? Isn't that like a good thing <laughs> to have? But no, not everybody becomes addicted or develops a compulsive behavior with pornography in the same way. Sometimes it's a result of unresolved issues. Sometimes it's a result of uh, not having coping strategies to deal with strong emotions. Sometimes um, they don't have coping strategies to deal with stress. And other times it's a traumatic um, issue from their childhood or adolescence. Mm. Well, can you can you sort of share the turning point in your life when you sort of personally realized when you needed to break away from the addiction to internet pornography? Absolutely. I realized from the time I was about 17 years old when I started taking lots of risks to view pornography. And back then, I'm 39 now, back then it was still like uh, dial-up internet, um, mm -hmm. the early stages of that. And then there was like a paywall in front of it. You had to do a lot of searching. You had to like download it through torrents. <laughs> I mean, it was risky business and it was usually like a shared, a shared computer. I already knew that was a problem because the risk was just so high. My, my, I was living with an aunt at that point going to college and the risk was high. So the real wake up call came when I was in my early 20s, I would say about 21, 22, when I started trying to act out. And because I was so addicted to pornography, I had no idea what intimacy was. I had no idea how to connect with people. I didn't, with, with the opposite sex, I didn't know how to get on dates because to me, every woman had only one purpose. And that was if they were not family, then it was like, do I find you attractive enough to have sex or not? So obviously, women would feel that weird vibe for me. And so I was quite unsuccessful. So what I would do is I would go out to the bars, I would drink, I would come back at night, I would watch pornography. And eventually I started going on these personal anonymous sites. Like back then they had the personals on Craigslist looking for uh, an anonymous hookup. I was still deep down, and I have to say this, I have to give credit to being raised in a conservative way. A lot of those values that were instilled in me and a lot of values that are instilled in those of us who grew up conservative often come back to save our ass later on in life. Uh, because when you're just about to cross the line, that voice comes up and goes like, you weren't raised like this. Like, what are you doing? And that would come up. But one day I did cross the line and there was a lady who, lady who said, come over. I am babysitting. And she had pictures and she was like, I'm from out of town, babysitting for family. The kids are asleep. Uh, come over and let's have sex. So I'd been drinking, jumped in my car, and I drove down there. I remember this vividly because I was excited. I was, you know, I had like a condom in my pocket. And it was so funny when you hear, when you look back at things like this and you read about, even though these are not the same things, you read about people who are sexual mm -hmm. predators. You know, how they, they are caught with the, with the, like the condom in their pocket, trying to meet somebody. Now I was trying to meet yeah. an adult, but till today, when I hear stories like that, when I'm talking to clients who've been in that situation, I still have that fear within me. I was just like, man, the shame comes up. Like, dude, what were you doing? You didn't even know who this person was. I drove up, they instructed me to park behind an alley. I waited there and I was really paranoid. So I left my vehicle in drive. It was an automatic vehicle. And it wasn't a woman. It was actually a group of people or a person. I don't know. I know there was one person that they, they were trying to rob me or something was oh going to happen. I panicked. I freak out, freaked out. I hit the accelerator. I drove through someone's oh yard, came out on the other side of the street. And I remember driving home just with my hands squeezing the steering wheel. I remember saying, JK, what are you doing? You were not raised like this. You were not raised like this. You were not raised like this. Heart pounding all the way home. When I came home, that was the moment I decided that I had a problem. I'd crossed the line. I could have gone to jail. Uh, I could have been hurt. I could have showed up on the news the next day. 
and I had to make a decision. So from then on, I started looking for different ways to seriously end my behavior. But could you kind of share with us what, how, over those 10 years, like what was the most about the addiction? How did it impact you the most? Gosh, it literally impacted every aspect of my life. And a lot of this was in retrospect. I did Mm. not know that. Let's start with my relationships with other people. And for the listeners, those of you who are listening, I, I think this is very important because our sex life is it's an integral part of our life. It's it's very important. And many people watch pornography. I would say most people watch pornography in some what do you, way. What do you mean? I, what, what do you mean? But they are not aware. <laughs> they're not aware of. No, what uh, they're not aware of when they are overdoing it because it's been so normalized. The first thing that happened was my as I alluded to earlier on was my inability to develop intimacy. I didn't know that pornography has nothing to do with intimacy, especially for individuals who are don't already have a partner. And there are a lot of young men out there who, and men who are separated, and women who are separated now, especially since the pandemic, we saw an increase in the number of women who are reaching out for help, who spend so much time with it. It is a spectator mm. event. You are literally like a monkey watching two other people having sex, you don't care about their stories. You don't care about their lives. You don't need a storyline anymore. Back in the day, there was a storyline. Now, even women who were more invested in the emotional aspect of the storyline, I like skip that, skip that. I want to get to the good part. And that's the reason why pornography is shared in bite-sized clips right now, because we just want the best part. But how does that train your brain? Well, when it comes to sex, (laughs) a lot of men are confused when they cannot keep an erection or they cannot have one. And that's simply because that mechanism has been completely removed. When you watch pornography and you masturbate, physically two things happen. First of all, you don't release oxytocin. Oxytocin is the is a bonding neurochemical. It's only released. It's released when like you're you're hugging someone or you're making love to someone you care about or you're holding a baby or you see a cute animal. None of that is released when you're masturbating. Secondly, for men in particular, when you masturbate to viewing pornography, that motion that is not a natural motion when you're actually in a vagina. That's not what's happening. You are controlling it yourself. doesn't matter whether you're using lotion or whatever, but your PC muscles in between your legs, I don't know if you guys have heard mm-hmm. of Kegels. Very, yeah. Yes. Very yeah. You, are, you, you create an imbalance in your pelvic floor because you're not, you're, you're, it's not, it's not a, what's the word for it? It's not replicating a natural movement. So a lot of guys don't even know that the reason they cannot keep an erection is because the two muscles that make up your pelvic floor, the ischiocavernosis muscle and the bulbocavernosis muscle, are imbalanced. So one is underdeveloped. So breaking free from addiction often involves overcoming challenges that you didn't know necessarily were there. So what were the most, I guess, significant hurdles that you faced during uh, your recovery, your recovery, like when you were in recovery, when you knew it was a problem, when you were actively trying to seek getting away from this? Interestingly enough, the biggest hurdle was recovery itself, the entire concept. If you notice, we're called Porn Reboot, not Porn Mm. Recovery. A company is called Elevated Recovery simply because the general public resonates with that term. But none of the systems worked for me. Therapy didn't work for me. 12 steps didn't work for me. And I got to thinking about it. I was like, why am I so resistant to this? One of the things was I was very resistant to the idea of being powerless, of admitting that I was powerless over something. Because common sense told me that this was a natural biological function. And all my ancestors before me had some sort of control, right? Like, how was I as a man not able to control my sexual behavior? That just, and then the only way was to show up to a group, admit I was powerless. And then once an addict, always an addict, live with this forever. That is often the biggest hurdle that most people struggling with an addictive behavior to pornography have to overcome. 
because the systems out there to help them are designed for external substances. They're designed for things like cocaine, for methamphetamines, for alcohol. But with pornography, what's the drug? The drug is endogenous. It is within you. The only high you get is from the actual orgasm when dopamine and all these other endogenous opiates are released in your brain. However, this is a behavioral addiction. What does that mean? It means when somebody's watching pornography today, they don't sit down and watch a 20-minute video. <laughs> what they do is they open a tab and they jump from clip to clip to clip to clip. Why? Because each clip, each time they watch it, they are training themselves to increase the level of dopamine that they need. So the people don't repeat. They may have their mm -hmm. favorites, but it just doesn't hit the same mm -hmm. each time. So they need more and more stimuli in order to feel good. But during the process, there are different feelings that come up. For men, for example, when they're triggered, let's say they're stressed out or they see a particular image or they're tired, what happens is they, are they, they need to do something about it. But because they don't have a healthy coping mechanism like taking a walk or taking a nap or talking to someone or getting out of loneliness or isolation, immediately, how do I feel better? orgasm. But they don't go straight to orgasm. What first happens is they release a little bit of testosterone. Then the thought of viewing pornography causes them to release some adrenaline and norepinephrine. The uh, norepinephrine is a cousin of adrenaline. Mm -hmm. When that, you know, that excitement that comes up and you're like, oh, I'm about mm -hmm. to have sex, mm -hmm. that's norepinephrine. It's a little bit different from adrenaline. Adrenaline is more like fight or flight. But you know, it's sexually, that excitement has a different quality, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. That's norepinephrine. When norepinephrine is released, some guys over time begin to realize that, oh, when I ultimately orgasm, I lose everything. It ends. It's time to take a nap. So what do they do? They extend the amount of time that they spend with norepinephrine. Mm -hmm. So they start edging, they're watching for hours. They don't want to orgasm because mm. it ends. And they are actually addicted to that process of mm. preventing them from orgasming. So when they go into traditional recovery, which is dealing with the substance itself, they're not able to get any sort of mm. relief because it's not talking about the process. Yeah. It's just like, you need to stop doing this because it's shameful. What are your triggers? Blah, 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 blah. Talk to somebody. And that was my biggest hurdle to answer your question, Todd. Mm -hmm. My biggest hurdle was that while I was seeking help, and the big hurdle for many people is they do seek help. They overcome their shame to do so, but they don't find something that is going to give them permanent relief. And when you find somebody who is feeling shame, isolation, depression, and a lack of control, and you give them all these promises that you're going to help them end this behavior, and it doesn't, the next thing that comes up is mm. hopelessness. Then they look around them at a highly sexualized world and it looks to them like everyone's in control of their sexual behavior. Everyone's enjoying sex, except them. They're the ones who can't get an erection. They're the ones who can't get a partner. They're the ones who are always objectifying the people around them. They're the ones who are feeling lonely and shameful and guilty and isolated. So the big hurdle today it's not the shame and the guilt and the things holding them back. The big hurdle is the recovery systems have not been updated to deal with high-speed, modern versions of internet pornography. Or probably a lot of people in, in this scenario because it's not, uh, like you said, it's kind of like having an eating addiction. It's not it's something you still have to do or it's around you. But how did you... Like what alternate alternative approaches did you find to be helpful and how did you find those? Yeah, such a good question. I found those through trial and error. Most of my early 20s was spent living in debt as <laughs> I paid really good money that I did not have to travel to different places and learn different modalities. So I'll go to San Diego and do these woo-woo like this was before breath work became a thing. I do all the deep breath work. I meditated a lot. I uh, did a lot of coaching. I had men work with me on coaching, but I came to realize a, a few things and it, I distilled it down to three simple things. The first thing was that 
there was no way I was going to stick to any system if I didn't already have the habit of implementing that system in my life. And a lot of people in general just have bad habits. So telling them to do something for recovery is just to most busy people. They're like, that's just another thing. People have yeah. kids. They have multiple jobs. Mm-hmm. They have side hustles. And then you're telling them that they have to start going to a <laughs> meeting twice a week. Fuck that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't have time mm-hmm. for that. So the, the first thing I needed to do was do something that would incorporate control into my life. It was first to work on habits, but I had to identify the areas where I was triggered the most. It's different for everybody. For me, I had a lot of low self-esteem that was connected to my ability to be attractive. I was very lonely and I was craving intimacy. I didn't know it. So I would crave intimacy, but then I'll get in front of a woman and immediately objectify her. It wasn't making sense. I was like, why do I want to feel like I have a girlfriend? But there's this disconnect because when I'm in front of a girl, I only want to have sex. So I was like, ah, I need to learn how to be intimate. But I needed to build up the habits of being intimate with Mm. myself because all porn addicts have a deep self-loathing and deep self-hate. So I started habitual practice every every morning. And there's a wonderful book by a guy guy called Kamal Ravikant. This came out after I was was rebooted, but I, I read it and I was like, this is somebody talking about something I did. It's called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It because mm. it does. And basically, I would just tell myself every morning as an affirmation in the mirror that I loved myself. Right? I would just sit, look myself in pick one eye, look at myself in the mirror and just go deep into that person, connecting with him. I also started a meditation practice. I started going for 10-day retreats, silent retreats. And all of this was an attempt for me to just get in touch with myself. Once I changed the habits, the next step was to make it a part of my lifestyle. So I incorporated it into my lifestyle, approaching people, giving them compliments, having a morning routine where I expressed my love for myself, self-awareness of my emotions and my feelings every morning was very important. And then there's obviously a few more things Mm -hmm. to this. And then finally, the final part that's missing, when you look at a 12-step program or a program that somebody goes through with a therapist, it can change their lifestyle, but it requires willpower. And willpower is finite. This is the reason people keep falling off the train or getting off the tracks, falling off the wagon or whatever. The reality is there is no wagon. There is no train. And if you buy into the idea that there is, you're screwed. So people keep trying to stay on track with a lifestyle. But that's where the whole day-to-day and one-day-at-a-time thing comes from. Because a lot of these systems know how to keep somebody in a lifestyle, but they don't know how to change a person's self-image. And until your image as yourself, until my image of myself as an individual changed, to being a person who did not need pornography to feel better, who did not need it as a part of my life, nothing was going to change. When my self-image changed, it no longer became a problem in my life. So the three pillars, you could say, of our system are habits, lifestyle, and self-image. Now, there's a lot of deep work that goes into the self-image part, but that's how I overcame it. I have a question. I'm going to go a little bit off script here, Laura. Yeah. Uh, Do you see a correlation between porn addiction and sex addiction? Do you think the porn addiction, like, because I know we all, we've all heard of sex addiction, but we don't hear as much about porn addiction. And I just wonder if the two, if you see a, if someone has a sex addiction, they're often watching a lot of porn. Yeah, it depends, right? Sometimes there's a crossover. There are some people who believe that you know, pornography is some sort of gateway drug into sex addiction. Yeah. But it really depends on things like the person's conditioning, the way they were brought up. It depends on the trauma they experienced. There are so many people who literally cannot become sex addicts, even if they they had the opportunity, because their conditioning will not allow them to actually cross a line and actually do that. Right. There's some who can only do it with express it if they're paying for it with prostitutes and other people. So again, our sexual behavior is deeply tied to our upbringing as well. 
and people have different upbringings, uh, goes back to the arousal templates. So it is true that often in sex addiction, you will see pornography, mm-hmm. but that's not always the case. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And obviously we're, we're a podcast, mental health podcast that kind of focuses on mm. trauma and, and kind of dealing with the stories we tell ourselves, what's inside of our heads and, and how that's actually translating into the real world. So, you know, a lot of times it seems that addiction becomes fueled by a desire to kind of escape from an emotional pain and, and the addiction itself causes mental health problems. So would you mind kind of expanding on what kind of mental health problems addiction can, porn addiction can cause as well as how you help people to deal with those, the emotional pain from before and the emotional pain that it created. I like to preface this by saying that I am very, very careful when I speak to individuals about mental health. First of all, I'm not a therapist, although in my practice, we do have a psychiatrist, we do have therapists, we do have naturopathic doctors that work for us to serve our clients. But at the end of the day, we are a coaching company. So we we always just keep the line there. We screen clients that come through. Everybody who puts in an application goes through a mental health screening. And anybody who's found to have any sort of clinical issue, let's say clinical depression, that's co-occurring as a disorder with their behavior with pornography, has to work with the therapist in conjunction with working with us. Uh, One of the biggest things that I see, (laughs) there are a lot, but I'll I'll talk about one of them first. I'll talk about one of the more common ones, and I'll talk about one of those that's actually very common, but people view it as an exotic, oh, it doesn't happen that much, much often. One of them is depression, and depression comes from what I talked about earlier. First of all, this is a an isolating behavior. It's a very it's a very selfish behavior when you engage in it, and it doesn't matter how nice or sweet you are. Eventually, the time the the time you'd be spending being intimate with your partner or partners, you are spending that time in front of a screen. Your subconscious is aware that you are hiding. Your con- subconscious is engaging and watching things that you may not even engage in in real life. This brings up shame. For example, everybody has fetishes. Everybody has fantasies. And these are actually healthy things. The problem with fetishes and fantasies is only one thing. We're simply concerned about what other people would think of us if they found out what they were. The pornography industries Mm. know this. And so they exploit this. But you watch it over and over again. And eventually you start thinking that it's normal. You're just like, well, holy crap, there are 10,000 videos of this genre out there. It must be normal. There's amateur pornography of this. Everybody must be doing it. But it doesn't change the fact that you are shameful about it. So now in your mind, everyone in the world is doing it, yet it is a bad thing and it is a shameful thing. When you find that you cannot stop this behavior, you promise yourself, you get on your knees, you pray to God, you talk to your wife, you're like, I'm not going to do it any, anymore. You know, I know I got caught or you, you cannot maintain an erection in bed. You immediately break that promise to yourself. That repeated lack of control, telling yourself and promising yourself that you cannot do something destroys your self-confidence. One of the best ways to build self-confidence is actually to say you're going to do something and do it on a repeated basis. That's it. That's just one of the foundations. And you cannot do that. That seeps into every other aspect of your life. There are lots of, we work with a lot of successful clients, but a lot of them come to us because they're stuck. Talent has got them to a certain place and they have certain habits. But when it comes to jumping to the next level, they can't do that because they have this secret behavior, because there's one factor in their life where they are constantly, constantly failing. All of that leads to depression. The hopelessness needs, leads to depression. So that's one of the most common issues. Another issue that faces people that might be viewed as somewhat exotic is the changing of their sexual preferences, right? There's something called HOCD, which is Homosexual Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, which is an offshoot of typical OCD, except that a person has viewed so much pornography, straight pornography, that they need more taboo material in order to start feeling the same uh, release of dopamine and the same excitement and stimuli. 
So they start watching gay pornography or any other pornography that's not in tune with their sexual behavior. Now, the waters get murky here because we live in a society where a lot of different sexual preferences are accepted. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But for somebody who is confused about their sexuality and for whom this is induced by pornography, oh, they live in a very confusing time. Am I straight? Am I gay? Am I bisexual? What gender am I? And this is obviously very murky territory to be in. But when HOCD kicks in, a person starts obsessively worrying about their sexual preferences, which means that when they, and they have an addiction to pornography. So they're out there looking at people and objectifying them and immediately going into this loop of, am I gay? Am I not gay? Am I gay? Am I not? A few years ago, it wasn't an issue. In the last few years, hundreds of men have come to us with this concern. Some of them have decided for themselves that, you know what, maybe I'm bisexual, maybe I'm gay. And this has its own consequences in terms of their mental health, especially once they've controlled their behavior. But in terms of it being a mental health issue, it's been significant. In fact, every podcast interview I've done where I've mentioned HOCD, the hosts of the podcast have told me that people reached out to them and we've had people and we track them reach out to us directly simply because they said, oh, I thought I was the only one struggling with that. I would work with my therapist, but I wouldn't tell them that I was watching pornography that was not in line with my sexual preferences. But that was my problem. Just I just was so confused. So those are two main things, I would say. There's depression, there's HOCD. But in between it, guys, I just want to make it clear, there's everything else. There are people who have latent narcissistic traits that become magnified simply because they are viewing pornography. There are people whose perfectionism literally becomes what you would call reverse narcissism, where they keep looking at the world and thinking that everything is perfect but themselves. We have literally every trait you have, negative traits, can be brought to the forefront by the time you spend with pornography. Because think about it, it is not just entertainment. It is multiple genres. It is run by a marketing machine with an algorithm that is based on accurate data. Millions of people view pornography. So the marketing machine behind Pornhub and X videos and all these companies, what's the name of the company? MindGeek that owns all of them. That's the main company that owns the the big porn sites. They have all this data. They know what you are going to watch before you watch it. The algorithm knows what to show you. You know what the worst part is? Your mind, when you are viewing pornography, is in an altered state. When you are in an altered state, what are you susceptible to? You're susceptible to any sort of subliminal suggestion. How do we know you're in an altered state? Because everybody who watches pornography only comes to their senses once they orgasm. Oh my God, what the fuck did I just watch? What was that? Oh, wow. What was that? You are not in your senses when you're viewing pornography. So this makes you susceptible to all sorts of mental health issues. People are just not aware of that. It wasn't a problem in the past because we didn't binge watch it. There was no capacity for that. But now pornography is easily accessible and it is anonymous. You can access it on your phone. You don't need to get in a train or a bus, go across town and go to the video store to get it. I'm, I'm sorry. Can you just expand a little on the reverse narcissism thing and how it links to porn? I'm just not understanding how, how that becomes a thing. The term I use that is reverse narcissism is I'll, – let me give it a little bit of context. So some of my clients who are narcissists or who have well, – let's start from here. Narcissism itself – Clinical narcissism is a problem, and the general public uh, conflates both things. When they say, oh, he's a narcissist, there are a lot of, she's a narcissist, oh, I had a narcissistic mother. The truth is, people have narcissistic traits. Some have less than others. I'm not saying it's on a spectrum, it's just specific traits. But when you engage in something that is selfish, 
is isolating and is about you. So all you're doing when you view pornography, especially for men, is you're constantly comparing. You're constantly comparing the size of your penis, your body, your ability to satisfy someone. And at the same time, you are changing your biochemistry to only satisfy yourself. I want to orgasm. I want to have sex with her in a way that is visually stimulating to me, which is why a lot of women are like, oh, yeah, having sex with these guys is very uh, performative, right? The guys have to put them in a different in different situations. So as in different positions in order to get aroused. So as a result, you end up really just thinking about yourself, yourself, your looks, your desires, and you can see this magnified on, on social media. But at the same time, there are certain individuals who have these traits, but they have low self-esteem. And still, I'm not sure how y'all are probably aware of this, a lot of narcissism mm -hmm. is born from poor yeah, self-image. Oh, yeah. yeah, from shame. But we have some individuals who already have a poor self-image. What do you get when you have somebody who has a poor self-image already and they had little narcissistic traits? And then they start viewing pornography and their tiny little narcissistic traits start growing. You get people who have things like a sense of entitlement. So in a person who just has poor self-image, they'll just feel like shit mm. all the time. They don't feel entitled to anything. They just feel like, oh, I'll never get that. I These people feel like they should get it. I should be with a beautiful woman. I should have all these things. But at the same time, it's based on an extremely poor self-image. Wow. We're not designed to deal with as much stimuli as we have right now. And we're not designed to see as many people as we see on Instagram. We're not designed to see all these cool locations visually and all these beautiful people and all their cool lifestyles. I tell my clients all the time, do you understand that you right now, you alone, you have seen more naked people having sex than every single one of your ancestors before you? That is a fact. This generation, we have seen more naked people having sex than every single one of our ancestors have ever seen. That is insane. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how messed up we are? mentally all of us including yeah. us in here like we are messed up and then you throw in something like instagram yeah. oh we, we just have a generation of people who are just totally screwed none of that is normal and so the process of rebooting the reason we're called porn reboot the p with the reset button is not about recovering because when you're doing recovery you are recovering that which is lost that which you lost to your addictive behavior, obviously, right? You're recovering the intimacy, the ability to love, the ability to feel again. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that this generation, you don't know what it is like to love in the first place. You don't know what it's like to have intimacy because we have people who just grew up with their, they, the minute they got bored, they're not yeah. sent outside. We were sent outside. They just, they just throw a tablet mm -hmm. in their hand. Absolutely. Can we talk about the concept of self-awareness and and the urges during the recovery process. Um, how, how does cultivating self-awareness contribute to healing growth and and ultimately overcoming this, this addiction? Self-awareness has everything to do with it. The first thing is when people start watching pornography, especially if they start watching it early on in life, they're usually watching it in order to cope with some very strong emotions that they couldn't handle. For example, someone might go through a breakup when they are 14, 15 years old, and pornography just became their coping mechanism. But what happens if you didn't learn how to process that emotion? Well, that emotion is sort of frozen in time, right? You have to start going back to understanding what the emotion is. A lot of practices out there try to get people to identify feelings and emotions via things like journaling as part of the healing process. But it's very difficult when you actually don't have a wide template of emotions to identify. So one of the first things we do when working with our clients is we give them what's called a feelings exercise, which is in the morning, sit down and start identifying emotions. We just want you to identify three, right? I feel whatever. But the second line is going back to the first time you can remember experiencing this feeling. I first remember feeling annoyed when, and you keep doing this exercise day after day, what happens is that you prime your subconscious mind 
to start automatically going back. So eventually when you sit down to do the exercise as a habit, it starts going back further. It's like, oh, we're doing that thing where we go back in time. And then it starts going back to your childhood, to adolescence, and you start creating a link between unfamiliar feelings that you keep repressing right now, or rather you keep suppressing, excuse me, and emotions that you experienced in the past. In the past. That's an awareness exercise. Another one could be labeling, which is the process of just labeling emotions as they come up. So we could be sitting here and I could, I could start labeling emotions. I could say like, okay, I said I'm sitting here, so I became self-conscious of the way I'm speaking. So self-conscious about the way I'm speaking. Or I could be looking at y'all and trying to read what your thoughts might be or how y'all might be feeling. So I'll just like, oh, uh, projecting. I'm projecting an emotion or something. So we, you just do that on a consistent basis. This can be done through mindfulness meditation or actually sitting down to learn how to label. Self-awareness can also come through great accountability, right? A great accountability partner who can ask you the right questions and can give you that space to sit down and reflect. That can be very helpful. So we do accountability in a very mindful way. It's not just running your mouth about how your day was or the urge you felt. It's really talking about feelings. But then from there, how do you kind of help people to replace that hole, I guess, in a way, that addictive behavior in a healthy way, as well as kind of learn to re-regulate their emotions? Yeah. So there are a lot of words that you use there that are pulled from traditional mm. therapy, which I don't have a problem <laughs> with. I've, I've borrowed <laughs> generously from it because a lot of that helped me as well. Uh, again, it every client that we work with gets on a customized okay. plan. So it's never a template. It simply means that everybody comes with their own reasons for dealing with this problem and their own motivation for ending it. So for example, a very simple question we ask people is, why did you come here? What's the primary reason? And we find that people come to us for one of three main reasons, out of fear, out of love, or out of duty. And the way we will approach your treatment plan, so to speak, is dependent on the motivation for bringing you there. Somebody who came out of fear, for example, they may need to spend more time acknowledging their own reasons for doing this. So some people will come from fear of their partner or their spouse mm. threatening mm. to leave them. Some people have watched something and the FBI could kick oh. their door in any day. And they're like, oh, I think I crossed the line. That's fear. Some people can't stop using their work computer at home, working remotely to view pornography. And HR has given oh, them wow. a warning, right? Duty could be the father who is just about to have his first child or the man who is engaged and he's about to get married. And he feels that to be a good father he has to embrace certain values and pornography is, is not a part of that, right? And then we have love, right? Love is, is across the board. We have people who spontaneously decide, I need to do this for my kids. Like I'm, I'm not present um, mm -hmm. when it comes to this. So the, the plan of treatment is based on that. I, I would say this ultimately, in order for somebody to end this behavior, there needs to be an actual endpoint that they can see. And I want to make it clear that in traditional recovery, there is no end point, right? It's once an addict, always an addict. And the point I really want to bring home is that rebooting is about hitting the reset button because a lot of us have nothing to recover and don't want to recover things mm. from our past. Even if you had a beautiful past, that time is gone. That person is not the same. The quality of the love and the experience is not going to be the same. So the first thing our clients do is identify what their ideal life after rebooting from this behavior is going to be like. Like that's so important to sit and define what is healthy sexuality for me, not what my sponsor or pastor or society tells me. What do I want my sexual life to be like? What do I want intimacy to be like? What do I want my habits to be like? And then we work towards that. And they find as they go through the process, what is unrealistic? They're like, oh, okay. Actually, I'm not a person that's supposed to have multiple partners. I actually thought I could, but I realized that I'm just not mm. built that way. 
when should a person seek help? Because you talk a lot about personal accountability and personal responsibility, but if they don't know the signs or they don't know that, oh, I actually do have an addiction, you know, what, what do you think that is something that is like glaringly obvious? The most glaringly obvious thing would be when you tell yourself and you make a firm decision to stop engaging in that behavior, especially when that behavior is interfering with a major domain of your life. If it's interfering with your family life, your sex life, your financial life, one of those areas. And then you say, I've got to stop this. But despite repeated attempts to stop, you cannot. And it brings up negative emotions. Then you have a compulsive behavior. That's it. It's interfering with a major part of your life. You tell yourself you want to stop. You try to stop. It doesn't. And as a result of that, the third factor is negative emotions like shame, guilt, and hopelessness come up, you have a compulsive behavior and it's going to keep getting worse. So it's when you try to stop it and then it doesn't, or you stop it for a few days, but then you go right back to it and you can't stop it for a long, long period of time. That's when you know it's like... Yeah, there's a last part and it brings up a strong mm. negative emotion. If not, it's just mm. bad habits. Uh, All of us have bad habits we keep doing. I keep eating brownies. I can't stop (laughs) eating freaking brownies once in a while, but it doesn't bring up negative emotions for me. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's just a habit. But if I was facing deep shame and guilt and I was looking at my body after I ate a bunch of brownies and then feeling really bad because I couldn't stop, but brownies are all so goddamn delicious, I have a problem. I have a compulsive behavior. It's affecting my mental health. Wow. I think that's like probably the most eloquent and succinct description of addiction I've ever heard. And I, and I'm like, and, and And we've done how many of these? Yeah. I mean, we've done (laughs) lots of addiction discussions and we actually have talked to people that have have addictions and they don't like being defined by I'm in recovery or because I just love this approach because it's like, it's not backwards based. It's not looking back at your past. It's looking at what you want to be in the future. And that doesn't mean that you have to like never masturbate again. It just means like you can, that might be your goal that you just don't use porn. That's it. Your future (laughs) is infinitely greater than your past. You nailed it, Laura. That's the truth. A lot of people are still stuck on their identity from the past. And that's why I say create your ideal life after rebooting. Why? Because you always have something to look forward to. So what happens when you slip and you relapse? Instead of feeling bad about it, what you do is you analyze it. You look at the data. So you don't go like, oh, I'm a piece of shit. I failed Mm -hmm. again. You look at the data and you find out what was the self-care that I wasn't engaging in? What was the boundary I was crossing? And what was the emotion that I was not dealing with? That's all you need to do. You become very rational about it. So guess what? All of those things don't become losses. Your relapse is never a loss. Every relapse, you condition yourself to see it as a learning Mm -hmm. experience. It simply becomes a rung on the ladder towards your ideal life. And when you start looking back, do you see a bunch of relapses and stupid things you did? No, you just see a bunch of wins of experiences. So we reframe the entire process, which makes it exciting because all you're doing is counting wins. When you come into one of our meetings or sessions, the first thing I want to hear is your wins. I don't want to hear, I'll I'll hear about your relapse. We'll hear about the strong emotions that came up, but we're only interested in hearing about the win that you were able to take after out of it. Why is this important? It's important because every person is actually the best expert at themselves. I'm the best expert at JK. Todd's the best expert at Todd and Laura, you're the best expert at you. You just need somebody to clear the mess in your way so that you can do you. That's the job of a good coach is to get the crap out of your way, not tell you what to do. They just keep you accountable and guide you. But the ultimate decision and power lies in your hands and you must be empowered to go towards your own future. That's the true meaning of rebooting. That's why I separate myself from recovery. Yeah. 
And that's why we have people who end their behavior in 90 days to two years permanently. Yeah. I kind of want to know if um, there may be individuals, I know you said a lot of people overcome this embarrassment and shame to seek help, but Mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of people who feel hesitant and embarrassed to actually seek help, uh, especially kind of in this day and age with the I, toxic masculinity and this whole like kind of certain expectations mm. for men. So what advice would you give someone who's reluctant to take that first step? Take a look at your life right now and just ask yourself a simple question, right? It's not about like, am I where I want to be? Just literally ask yourself how happy you are. Right? Anybody who's struggling with this behavior and who's listening to this episode If you're listening to it up till this point, one hour in, either there is somebody, a loved one in your life who's struggling with this, or you are struggling with this. Because I've said enough things in this podcast for you to go like, ah, nah, that's not me. I don't feel bad about it. And you would move on. So if you're still listening at this point, I just want to say this, right? You may have a problem and you may be deeply unhappy, but you're probably not going to seek help. Understand that there's something else within you that's always having a conversation with you. It is always rationalizing and justifying why you shouldn't. And the first rationale is, I don't have this problem. It is something I can control on my own. That's the first statement it's telling you. It's not that big a deal. See, we're very judgmental, right, as human beings. But the interesting thing is that for an addict who may be listening to this, your being judgmental is actually a form of distancing. You may listen to me. You may hear my accent. You may watch the video. You will see something. And a person who is avoiding it, what that voice in their head will say, that voice will always look for a reason to distance themselves from that person. You must be aware of this. If not, you won't even go to a 12-step program. You won't even search for anything. You won't even speak to a therapist. The voice in your head is the thing that's holding you back. And until you can step past it, nothing's going to work. I want to make that very clear. I wish I could share some like super hopeful message on how you can take action. But the truth is a person who truly struggles with this addictive behavior goes through ups and downs. They may have a relapse. And for the next two days, they're like, I'm going to seek help. They'll Google it. We've been doing this for 11 years. We know the data. It takes people up to five years before they work with us. I have emails people have been sending me from way back in the day. And they're just like, hey, I'm reaching out. I was like, you're not reaching out for the first time. They're like, oh, yes. I I was like, no. When you reached out, you weren't married and you're about to get married. And then you said, hey, I really want to go into as this type of Christian man who doesn't do this. Now you're on your second kid. And the stress of having this second kid and this job is causing you to slip and relapse. Bro, I know your history. It's in my email (laughs) inbox. Why? There's a voice inside that's holding you back. So the moments that you realize at some point during this podcast episode that I have a problem and there's that click, maybe I should seek help for this, go ahead and make the decision. But do this one thing. Set the intention, just an intention that I am going to speak to somebody about this. That's all I need you to do. Don't try to get into treatments. Don't start researching plans or places you can go. All of that will be hijacked by that voice Mm. in your head as a reason to not, oh, it's too freaking expensive. You can't work with these people. It's too far away. It's in person. I prefer to work with a woman. Mm. That guy sounds too aggressive. I don't, all of that is bullshit. All you need to do is talk to somebody. And once you've done that, you're good to go. Because you have shown a light, as Brene Brown says, on the Mm. shame. That's the most uncomfortable part. Once you've done that, your subconscious mind knows now that it is exposed. And from then onwards, you will start listening to more material. You'll start talking to, to different people about it. You'll start listening to more material. But you must get past the argument it may be having with you right now to not do so. We do have a sort of a fun tradition on this show after talking about some heavy stuff and we just like a little bit of a palate cleanser. So we have a question of the day that we ask everybody just sort of like, poo. So Mm. our question of the day is for you, JK, would you rather 
be able to teleport to any place in the world at will or have the ability to rewind time by 24 hours whenever you want? Teleport to any place in the world at will. Why is that? As somebody, in my case, who has ended an out-of-control behavior, every single morning, one of my superpowers is knowing that it may be my last day. As cliche as that is, I set an intention to go all out in everything. If I get on a podcast, I'm going to freaking go all out as if it's the last one I may do. So there's really no point in going back. I think going back in the day would be super mm. boring. Why would you want to go back when you kind of know like the trash guy is going to come at six and they're going to cut your grass at this? And like, it's, it's boring. day. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I would like, I'd much rather just go to a place I've never been to. Yeah. Yeah. So we are just so grateful for your time today and we could have gone on for hours. So we'd love to have you back anytime. And we hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. No, thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. Y'all asked some amazing questions. And just, I wanted to tell you guys on the air too, y'all actually pretty damn good interviewers. Y'all ask some good questions. Y'all listen. Y'all are, y'all are great at this and y'all should be proud of what oh you're doing gosh. here. I'll I will pay up. you to tell me that every day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very you much. You have to know that. Well, you have to know that. Very much appreciate that. That's yeah. awesome. Oh. Well, everybody go check out Elevated Recovery and we'll have everything in the show notes so that everybody can get in touch with you. And, you know, again, thank you so much. We hope you have the best, rest best of your day. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Okay. Well, what'd you think? His principles are, you, they're, they're universal in, in self-healing, self-awareness, self-recovery uh, on any, if you, if you have an addiction or if you don't, it's just mindfulness. He's really all about meditation, connecting with your, yourself. I mean, I just, I can't say enough about him. I would, there were several mic drop moments. What did you think? Oh, I mean, I think took probably about 15 screenshots of both of us with our mouths gaping open because <laughs> we were both like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense or didn't think of it that way. And I just love his approach to everything. I mean, I just love his approach, of it, whether it's porn, whether it's food, whether it's alcohol, whatever is like, if you obsess and ruminate about what happened or who you were or whatever, that's only going to keep you in the same place. Yeah. Whereas if we're going for a goal and, and not, I mean, I'm sure like, as he said, he has all therapists and, and all these other people at his disposal to refer to people, but it's just as a general mindset, it's so powerful to think 100%. like you do have control, like you're, you're powerless over your compulsion. But once you like rehabilitate yourself and your wiring. Yep. Then it's about habit. You know, then it's about control, you know, then you are in control and you don't need to obsess over it anymore. And I don't know. It's just it, it I love the the message. I love that he's putting something out there that most people aren't talking about. Yeah. And that he's just so charismatic. I mean, yeah, oh, oh, so charismatic. And you know what? I, lo I loved another thing that he said, it, you know, if he said if he if there was someone who didn't really know if they had a porn addiction or didn't know if they had whatever going on, he said the first thing he would ask them to do is stop and ask themselves, how happy am I? Yeah. And I thought yeah. that was such a that's like, how happy am I? And if I'm not happy, if I'm not at the level that I want to be happy, things have to change. And yeah. that that's just it, that it's so motivating and inspirational, but also like it, it's solving an issue. It's just it's all of the things I will say on air. Don't you feel like this is why we do this podcast, like for, for oh, yeah. episodes like this, where we do get more enlightenment and things that we haven't heard before? Yeah, uh, because we can implement them in our own lives and you know tell our friends, our listeners get a get a fresh take on something that they might even not even know that is an issue for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing is that and I heard him on another podcast talk about how, you know, he is not against He's not against porn. He's not against masturbating. He's not against those things. He has chosen in his own life not to participate in that, that he, you know, reserves 
his time for his partner, understandably with, you know, kind of how probably just knowing that it can become a habit that becomes a compulsion that becomes something that makes you deeply unhappy and it comes from a place of being deeply unhappy. But I loved being able to hear his story Mm -hmm. in addition to everything that he's now putting in place and like the, the mental stuff, I mean, just the brain, the the chemical aspects, you know, I'm obsessed with that stuff. So totally hopefully that some people out there that are feeling very alone in this issue or, you know, maybe don't think they have an issue, but also just kind of have an inkling, you know, to just kind of take a look at it because it could be, it could change your life. You know, that that is why we do this podcast. 100%. And Laura, before we go, I'm going to have to ask you the question of the day. Okay. Would you rather be able to teleport to any place in the world at will or have the ability to rewind time by 24 hours whenever you want? So I loved his answer. I give him all the kudos for it. I'm trying, I tried because I think I, I want both, but like my thing is like when I think about 24 hours, rewinding at 24 hours, it's not to like relive like a good day. It's always to like undo a mistake yeah, <laughs> or something, but like, that's kind of who makes you who you are, you know, and you learn from the mistakes. Like that's if I was like a really big person, but not always being that way, it would be really nice to go back 24 hours and undo that. However, if you're really in trouble, you could just teleport to anywhere in the world. So <laughs> I think that's what I would choose because <sighs> It would be super cool and it could be a tactic to get out of a sticky situation. (laughs) What would you do? I'm out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Whoops. She's gone. I think that if you did the, I think, yes, it would be great to go back and and right the wrongs that maybe you said something you shouldn't have or somebody did something to you or you could prevent a catastrophe or something, whatever. That would be a great thing to do. But I feel like you'd then always be living in like regret. You'd always be like, oh, what what do I need to change about this day instead of, I think it would, I think it would cause you to not be able to be present ever. Yeah. And honestly, I don't even want to get into the time space continuum aspect of it because I just watched The Flash (laughs) and like you could just be stuck in that loop forever and just like try to change it. But maybe it's inevitable. So you just, it just keeps happening and then you're just living in a nightmare. There's too much room for error. (laughs) Exactly. So definitely teleport to anywhere at any time. Laura, this has been phenomenal. He, uh, JK, thank you so much for coming on the program. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was it was mind blowing and amazing. And everybody check out the show notes. Also, please like and subscribe and review. And, you know, we want we want to be able to keep doing this and we love you guys. So, um, you know, ne- until next time. Sounds great to me. All right. Bye. Au revoir.